This is Better Red Than Dead, a literature podcast from a left perspective. I'm Megan. I'm Tristan. I'm Katie. And today we have the second of our two Christmas episodes, A Christmas Memory, which is Truman Capote's 1956 semi-autobiographical short story about a young boy's friendship with his much older cousin in 1930s Alabama. Okay, so why read this? I have a mixed relationship with this story. And I think it's because I, before I read it, I had a different version of Capote in my head. So I'd read Breakfast at Tiffany's and In Cold Blood, which are like very different genres, very different books, like in as many ways as they can be. So this like intensely autobiographical stuff with a lot of emotional tension was just not my relationship with this work. And and it's, I mean, so it's kind of sentimental too, right? In a way that not, I mean, certainly not in cold blood, but I don't think Breakfast at Tiffany's is either, you know? No, it's certainly not. Yeah, but it also like reminds me how meticulous and affecting he is in short fiction and autobiography. Like he's another one of these people that, you know, despite my sneering at the New Yorker, reminds us that short fiction in the 50s is like a really important genre, even though it gets magnetized around the New Yorker, which like whatever. And okay, so like something else I mentioned in the context there are some really interesting studies in queer childhood in the last several years. There's a book by Catherine Bond Stockton, uh, an anthology edited by Stephen Brum. And I think that trope really appears here. I love that it has this like really mixed series of relationships with family. Like he's really close to his, he calls her his friend, but is unconnected to the rest of his family. This is consistent with Capote's own upbringing. Uh, he lived with lots of different relatives throughout his very difficult childhood. So I'm into that. And um, partly because of that, it's Christmasness strikes me as important, but maybe not the only central theme in the story. So that's cool. Interesting. Weird. It's not yeah. Dylan Thomas, who I think like Christmas is the primary thing. Yeah. Yes. Katie. Okay. So I wanted to read this because we we did the nostalgic Christmas bitch last time and now we're doing the sad Christmas bitch. And that's where I – that's the type of Christmas bitch that I am. So (laughs) affectively, I think, you know, it appeals on that level. I also have a Christmas memory of my own related to Truman Capote. So I was excited to revisit his work. So – Imagine an evening in late December. It's 2004. New Jersey? You're in New Jersey, yes, New Jersey. And uh, a gaggle of high school students have assembled to decide on a movie to see. So I'll I'll leave the framing device out. Uh, it, friends, that that little girl was me. I was there. Um, <laughs> and so, so one of our friends kindly decided to. Re- we're all fucking around, you know, trying to pick a movie, and this one guy decides he's going to take charge and read all of the available films out of the newspaper, and he begins with. Okay, who wants to see Capote? And <laughs> I mean, if you're going to mispronounce that, you pr- mispronounce it Capote. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it was it was surprising and delightful, and um, we wound up not seeing a movie actually. So <laughs> that ruined it for everyone. Yeah, we were done after that. He did think it was funny later, so it's fine to laugh about. I mean, it would be even if he did think it was funny. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay to laugh at him as well as with him. Yeah. Yes. Well, we did take him on a car ride after he went through a breakup. We put him in the back of a station wagon so he could cry with the windows down, listening to Kelly Clarkson since you've been gone. <laughs> you oh know God. that I like, I love Kelly Clarkson. Yeah. Well, like, with it would no not- irony whatsoever. I just love her. <laughs> You know, that's yes, it she's delightful and that's what you do that's what you do for a friend after they've gone through a tough time. You stick him in the you stick him in the back <laughs> of a station wagon. Yeah. And just let him let him cry and sing. Well, I have a hatchback. I think that's like one level away from a station wagon. Sure. Yeah, you're almost there. All you need is Kelly Clarkson now and crank those windows down. <laughs> Fuck yeah. So you didn't see Capote. We did. We did not. We did not. We didn't see Capote. We didn't see Capote. We didn't see Capote. We didn't see any of it. Uh, Yeah. Well, I tell you you how old I am. I I was in college when uh, season one of American Idol happened. So, yeah, back in my day. Uh, (laughs) uh, You can still love Kelly Clarkson, sir. I, I didn't say I didn't say anything about Kelly Clarkson. Oh, okay. I'm just saying I remember back back when you know when I remember the origin story there. <laughs> but, yeah, so this uh, this was the first Capote I ever read. Uh, I was a freshman in high school in, in the mid '90s, and I I don't know if this is exactly true, but I remember it being one of the first pieces of quote serious literature by a serious writer, uh, which I'm not you know actually saying that those are <laughs> those are real uh, designations. <laughs> But I think you know what I mean, and and I but I, it is the kind of first of those sort of things that I do really remember resonating with me. Yeah, you know, I just found it extremely moving and devastating, and I still do. And it's one of the texts that got me interested in Capote and narrative nonfiction, and you know probably relatedly journalism too, which I did for a while. And rereading it this time after many years, I think it still holds up for me for sure. I'm definitely noticing different things now, but Jesus Christ, that last line, and I think you're going to quote this too, Megan. But mm-hmm. I I keep searching. Searching the, the sky as if I expected to see, rather like hearts, a lost pair of kites hurrying toward heaven. Yeah, I cried again like a few nights ago reading that. I mean, it's just, uh, yeah, brutal. Yeah, it, you're going to make me cry right now. Yeah, I know, right? Like, uh, I, Looking at it, it seems more sentimental than it actually is, right? Yeah, right, right. Well, and, and as you know, I don't think that the sentimental is necessarily uh, bad or like kind of a dumb genre, but just like it looks like when you just read that without reading the rest of the story that it might be doing something a little bit different than it actually is. But whatever it's doing is, yeah, I mean, very, very, very uh, tough to read. Yeah. But yeah, I think it, it just raises many powerful questions about difference and otherness, particularly difference or otherness in a rural space. And having grown up in a rural area, I'm sure that aspect did sort of track with me, um, even as a teenager. I think it does follow on Dylan Thomas from last week pretty nicely and how it engages and plays with what it means to re-inhabit, you know, via memory, the experience and perspective of childhood. And I do think it does deal with nostalgia in its way, although I, you know, I agree that it, it that means different things, <laughs> certainly than how Thomas 
promises deploying it. And and maybe it's not nostalgia, but I mean, so, something in that sort of vein of thought. Also, particularly with Faulkner coming up in a few weeks, I've been really trying to work through my thoughts on per, the perspective it, this story gives, specifically of the rural South in the 1930s, because I do think this consciously marks itself as Southern in mm-hmm. certain ways. Although, and I think this is probably similar to Thomas, the fact that it's a young child's vantage point means that that has to be somewhat muted or background relative to how it might look through like an adult perspective. But yeah, I think there's actually a ton to talk about in this very, very short story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. So today we're going to be talking about autobiography, about how to read buddies, friends, statuses, other family and queer childhood. So to give a summary, we open on a morning in late November with a woman with shorn white hair telling the narrator that it's fruitcake season. The narrator that she's speaking to is me, in quotes. The narrator is seven and his friend is 60-something. The two of them are best friends. They live together in a house along with a bunch of other relatives who they don't really engage with much. She calls the narrator buddy, like a friend she had who had died years before. The narrator says that his friend, quote, is still a child. And this is this is hmm, this is kind of a hint that she might be developmentally disabled. But Capote had said of this woman that she was a genius. So that's just good to know stuff. I think even at this point I want to signpost this as like a non-straightforward thing that we can parse. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, I think what is most notable, and maybe, you know, when we get into the analysis we can start from, is that like she definitely is not part of the other adult world, right? right. Like, and, but like what, what the causes of that are is, I think that that is, is an open question that, yeah, can't just be resolved with a sort of neat and kind of short explanation. Yeah, I agree. Okay. So, Buddy and his friend are on a fruitcake mission. Though it's oh I okay. It's only delicious in this story. And I'm sure someone somewhere has a good memory of that bullshit too. Uh, I don't know who you remember, are. Remember the first time I ever had a piece of fruitcake and I was like, I have been lied to. This is horrible. I get up. Yeah, it's why is it so chewy and hard? Why does it have the weird candied fruit that is gross? It's dry and also sticky. Why is it dry and sticky? Why do they pour alcohol into it? Well, because you fucking need something to get through that. Yeah, right? It's all that gets you through. (laughs) So they take what she calls their buggy, which is like this old stroller pram thingy, and they collect the windfall pecans from a neighboring orchard. They have a dog that comes with them everywhere. Her name is Queenie. And she is an extremely good literature dog because she has survived distemper and rattlesnake bite she's like a rat terrier so this is like a 15 pound dog (laughs) and this is way better than any toto shit like this is a very good (laughs) book dog and we know i care about that yeah no i mean she she yeah she she should have been in call of the wild i feel like yeah for sure (laughs) you survived a rattlesnake bite come on Famous uh, rat rat terriers on the the mushy teams, right? <laughs> I mean, it would look hilarious, but it it'd be cool. <laughs> They're destructive motherfuckers, though. So they okay, and then they have to go buy the rest of the fruitcake ingredients, which is sort of a a whole uh, series of questions about how they get money and how 
They've saved a lot. They're usually broke, but they always scrounge up enough for a fruitcake fund. In the past, like a summer, they had what they call a fun and freak museum where they use like a stereoscope for the fun part and a three-legged chicken that's the freak part. <laughs> and this this museum netted them like 20 bucks. Like it was a huge success. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but then the chicken the chicken died. So. The chicken, yeah. that's what killed the museum was the uh yeah. decease of its star. Yeah. I also had to say uh that was not my experience growing up in, in the country, but I definitely heard a lot of stories in this genre to be like, yeah, th- this tracks very much as <laughs> <laughs> the pastimes of rural America. Consistent with. Yes, of, of a certain era for right. sure. Yeah. But this year they've saved $12.37 by doing like small jobs and scrounging. They kill flies for pennies, which sounds horrifying. <laughs> but is it enough? We're not sure. It's what they have. And it turns out that the really expensive ingredient is, of course, whiskey. And this is during Prohibition, so the cost of whiskey is much higher than it would otherwise have been, even mm. at that time. And they have to buy it from an Indian man named Mr. Haha. And Indian means native here, just to be clear. Although in the past, they've actually bought it from his wife. And when they meet Mr. Haha, quote, he is a giant. He does have scars. He doesn't smile. No, he glowers at us through Satan-tilted eyes and demands to know what you want with Haha. So they ask him for a quart of whiskey. They give him $2, but he actually refuses. Um, He says, just bring me back one of the fruitcakes, which is very sweet. And she says, oh, he's a lovely man. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a very brief, I mean, the whole story is pretty brief, but that's a very brief scene. But I did, I did kind of mark it as another lens into sort of how uh, it's investment in sort of like uh, the outside, uh, you know, kind of other characters or uh, the the kind of marginal, I mean, I mean, obviously like race for one thing, but also like, it's like, you know, because they're, they're running like a, you know, a a still, an illegal still and stuff. And Mm -hmm. so they're, so they're not part of like, like, you know, Haha Jones, uh, I'm sorry, is it Haha? Haha Jones or did Haha Jones, yeah. Yeah, Haha Jones. Like, and his wife are not like obviously part of like sort of uh, of, like official society, you know, like authorized society. Of course, we get the sense that everyone in the area buys their alcohol from them. But 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 yeah, and just that moment where like he, you know, he's very gruff to start, but then he's like, there's this person and this seven-year-old buying whiskey for me to make a fruitcake, and he just laughs and becomes very jovial. And it's it it always read as like this kind of meeting between like groups of people who are both outside of something, but kind of forming their own sort of just just i don't know just having a nice kind of interaction that is like outside of like the the mainstream or something like that oh yeah and that's like totally a thing in southern gothic mid-century fiction that Mm -hmm. there's a sort of like wide margin and that there are a lot of people in it it's mostly a class margin that is doubled with queer people disabled queer people and disabled in particular but racialized others too Mm -hmm. right yeah yeah and there's always like some weird friendship across like a disability line or across a an age like elder people are often also in that category. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting. I this is like a a tangent, but in Jesus everything this To Kill a Mockingbird, Flannery O'Connor, Faulkner, Carson McCullers, Southern literature from that period of time always has a disabled character in the book. Hmm. And 
I have not figured out why. I asked a friend who's in disability studies and she was like, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. No, and I mean, I obviously this is not my field, but I, but other than like, I definitely recognize what you're saying from it. Just like the such overtly pronounced shittiness, and well, I obviously racist, but just authoritarian in so many ways of like the mainstream society that I just I you know I I can, I mean, one thing it's just like okay, so you get writers that are like desperately kind of looking for ways outside of that, or people that don't just you know, that, that can maybe kind of stand between or something like that. I, I don't know. And I mean, that that's probably uh, being way too generalized. But I mean, it's just, I think, like, impossible question to think through without like, I don't know, I'd have to write a lot before I could figure it <laughs> yeah, out. Yeah, I mean, this is like at least a few dissertations. Sure. Right? Yeah. Yeah, because the quality of the relationship is always quite different. Or yeah. not, yes. not, not, it's particularized, but like, you have that character type, but also in a lot of different ways. And sometimes I think they do turn out to be like sort of sinister. And then other times sure. it turns out that, you know, like that they're a real yeah. sweetie pie. So. Right. Right. Oh yeah. yeah. And it's not even that it's a character trope. It's just like that quality of a character comes up again and again. And that's what I'm interested in. Right. Cause it's not actually mm-hmm. that they're all similar. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Boo Radley is nothing like fucking Benji Compson. Mm mm. No, or right. and who who it also isn't like Daryl from As I Lay Dying, right? right. I no, mean, not at all. Like I mean, sort like some similarities, but a lot of ways that no, very different kind of functions. Yeah, but there are a lot of physically and developmentally disabled characters in Southern literature at this time. Mm-hmm. But it's mm-hmm. like who know who we don't know why. It's a thought. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so Mister Haha gives them the whiskey, um, and then next they're in the kitchen and they have made. 31 ass fruitcakes <laughs> because they're nice people and they don't know that this is disgusting. <laughs> so they gift them to friends, but they also mail them to acquaintances, people they've met one time, uh, somebody whose car broke down, and of course one to Mr. Roosevelt because, you know, these are, again, just very nice people. Sure. So having finished fruitcake season they also finish the whiskey from mr haha <laughs> buddy's friend and he dance around the kitchen tipsy-ish before they're interrupted by some of their jerk ass relatives who are mad that a seven-year-old is drinking either because they have sticks up their butts or because they <laughs> seem to know a lot about future truman capote they, they're either asshole or time travelers or but um no seven-year-olds <laughs> shouldn't have whiskey what am, what am I no you know i know that right that seven-year-olds shouldn't be drinking whiskey. I I yes. knew that too. Yeah, no, really. <laughs> well, I sort of figured it out in the middle of my own sentence. So, <laughs> <laughs> wait, should they? Mm, probably not. I don't know. I mean, well, also, hey, like, I mean, let's let's you know, let's not import all our modern uh, our modern sensibilities. Well, they can drink right? rum. Like, they should just be happy with that. Yeah, and, and hey, I mean, you yeah, know, true. prohibition or not, this was an era in which, like, a lot of children's medicine is just alcohol, right? Alcohol like, and uh, opium, right? Yeah, yes. yeah, laudanum yeah. and liquor. Yes, they are yeah. the way I read this. So they're doing like shots, 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 shots. Yes. Like they're like yeah. in the teacup doing, you know. Wait, really? Yeah, well, I think there's like an inch left in the bottle. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. So <laughs> I did. I just mapped spring break on. But we should remember <laughs> that one of the weighs like forty pounds. Okay, fair. <laughs> I mean, all right. I like P. For anyone who doesn't have a sense of humor, right? PSA: Don't let seven-year-olds drink whiskey. <laughs> uh, well, I'm glad that they're not learning life lessons from a podcast. <laughs> yeah, or yeah. this particular podcast anymore. And also, they give some to the dog. Uh, yeah, they yeah right. <laughs> they do. <laughs> dog, dog is all right afterwards. Yeah, and she know. seems perfectly fine with it. Okay, so the next day they go to cut down a Christmas tree, and the rule is that they have to find one twice as tall as a boy, so he can't take the star off the top. Um, <laughs> they bring it home. They decorate it with bits and bobs they found. They make drawings like cat and fish cats and fish are easy to draw apparently and like handmade paper ornaments and it's like way too sweet and we're all crying by now yeah they make gifts for the rest of their family members and they have these very cute fantasies about what they would buy for each other if they could so he wants to buy his friend a knife and a box of chocolate covered cherries and she wants to buy or steal him a bicycle it's so sweet yeah yeah. On Christmas morning, they wake up and they're like obnoxiously excited. So they're like running around and he's tap dancing to wake everybody up. And um, <laughs> he's seven. Like, yeah. yeah. So Buddy gets what we at this podcast following Dylan Thomas have now come to call useful presents. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which are like hand me downs and a subscription to a child's religious magazine <laughs> which to his credit he says it makes me boil it really does yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can tell he's still pissed yeah. oh he's totally yeah. still pissed yes yeah. it's yeah. amazing um she gets a handmade shawl and some oranges but they've made each other kites which is incredibly lovely and then they go fly their kites together and okay this is the end sort of i'm getting close to the end of jesus christmas it's a lot yeah i'm gonna quote some of this and he says this is our last christmas together life separates us those who know best decide that i belong in a military school and so follows a miserable succession of bugle blowing prisons grim revelry ridden summer camps i have a new home too but it doesn't count Home is where my friend is, and there I never go. And while he's in military school, they still write each other letters, but hers begin to get sort of hazy as she slips into dementia. Again, she's in her 60s, and this is sort of like something we forget a little bit over the course of this story. And so, I mean, that which is, you know, I mean, that, in the depression, old, very old, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And Queenie, of course also dies in the following winter because everything is terrible and you don't get that does the dog die warning at the be content warning at the beginning of stories yeah and then the friend dies too and i'm just gonna read the last couple sentences and when that happens i know it a message saying so merely confirms a piece of news some secret vein had already received severing from me an irreplaceable part of myself letting it loose like a kite on a broken string. That is why, walking across a school campus on this particular December morning, I keep searching the sky, as if I expected to see, rather like hearts, a lost pair of kites hurrying toward heaven. Fuck. Ugh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. my God. 
Yeah, I was definitely crying again when I read that. Um, yep. I definitely you know, am not crying a little now. Not. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no. Um, we talked, oh, we, you know, we, we brought up the sentimental a little bit at the beginning. I, I think one reason why I now I don't really want to use that term for it is because it's sort of weird to apply the sentimental to your, as something to your own life. Like, I mean, I tend mm-hmm. to think of that as like very deliberately created in a, in, you know, a purely fiction setting sense, like a um, intense emotional response in the reader. It just has very different stakes when you're narrating your own life to do that in a way that I don't like, even if it like at a superficial level might share some similarities, I don't know that I really want to use the sentimental as the term to describe that. I mean, I'm certainly not averse to it if that's how you read it. I think that what makes it not sentimental for me as a reader is that like the affective dimension is totally mine in a sense that like the narrator says that he kept searching the sky it's severed from you an irreplaceable he doesn't talk about like i feel sad i cry and for me in sentimental novels it's like we witness we witness a ton of crying yeah you're right and it's yeah you're yes yeah yeah yeah. it's like part of the like sympathetic act is is in like witnessing emotion not so much. Yeah, you're right. Like the, the the emotion here is embedded more in the kind of reader experience of the the setting and the the perceptions of not like this per, the, this character is crying and so therefore I am crying. You know, but I don't. Know, Katie, is that I like I? Yeah. I don't think this is a sentimental. It, like belongs in the sentimental genre, but that segment and also I think there's something about the fact that this story is very successful in eliciting emotion and also sympathy. And I think that that is sort of important. And for me, why I don't exclude it from the sentimental category, because I think in a way it's possible that I don't think like the function is didactic necessarily, but it sort of like does do something to teach you about, I don't know, modes of feeling or like this pair of hearts hurrying toward heaven like together you know there is something to me in that and i think when we think about something like 19th century sentimental fiction it's political for the most part Mm -hmm. and this is not that but it's also i think yeah i don't know i see some i see some stuff in there of the genre Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and it's it's also it's not like what gets typed as sentimental fiction is the only kind of uh, uh, genre that's that's ever dealt with like the production of feelings, certainly. But 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 it's also I mean, you know, like, um, I mean, if Capote is many decades like I mean, a century later, really, you know, that to, to be to be like using some aspects of uh, but but also like, you know, existing to different and kind of more contemporaneous genres as well. But but no, I mean, I think I, I think you raise really good points too. like, I mean, I, I yeah, that 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 sounds right to me. Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly open to that. I think this last part is just like a version of it that's hard for us to recognize purely in that, you know, it's like we have to be good readers of sentimentality. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Yeah. absolutely. I just think that I think my thing here is that when things get called sentimental, what not not I'm not talking about you two, obviously, but like sentimental just means bad. Like it just means right, it's a right, bad book. Right, right, right. 
Yeah. Yeah. And that's not what we're doing. I just like, I'm used to the sort of like veil of tears in the sentimental novel, like coming in a different way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But like this shit, he has to know this is tugging your heartstrings like a motherfucker. Yes. But yeah. he doesn't show it. It's not, yeah. I'm not saying it's not sentimental. I'm just saying that like, no, no, yeah. That yeah. provides us with the way that it's like, has a great complicated relationship to that. Yes. Right. No, definitely. And I also want to say one of the reasons that I leapt immediately into doing this, this fucking uh, genre discussion is because it's too sad and I want to go into, you know, the other part of my brain so I don't start crying again. Yes. I'd like to discuss literary form and not activate my limbic system further. (laughs) Uh, I'm kind of with you. So, okay. So here's some context tiny bit of biographical stuff it's abbreviated because if you want a good capote biography go listen to season one we talk about in cold blood it's a very different episode but it's a very good book biographically speaking capote who did move around a ton in childhood he was he lived with different relatives mostly in alabama he was certainly a prodigy as a writer he first he says he first started writing seriously at eight They discovered some of his short fiction in 2003 in an archive that was later published that year that was written when he was between 14 and 18. Short fiction, like it's very good. His first short story, Miriam, was published when he was 21. Uh, Their Voices Other Rooms at 24. He's very prolific in his early career, Breakfast at Tiffany's and In Cold Blood, The Grass Harp. This is in some publications included in The Breakfast at Tiffany's volume which is weird yeah it's weird and as is true of i don't know an occasional writer (laughs) once in a while he was also like a prolific drinker and he loved drugs and he died in bel-air at 60 of liver disease yeah no writers ever ever done that before no 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 yeah first first time it's come up on the show for sure yeah in the last week yeah yeah yeah, yeah, So, A Christmas Memory was first published in Mademoiselle in 1956. I've mentioned this before, but like all kinds of women's and not even middle brow, but kind of trashy magazines in the 50s published some really good stuff. Shirley Jackson's story, The Demon Lover, was published in Ladies Home Journal. Mm-hmm. And if you've never read that story, it fucks you up because it's Shirley Jackson. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All kinds of really good shit was published. There's got somebody write that book about women's magazines and short fiction. It's anthologized in his collected short stories, which are collected together, I think, in the 60s. And it's published as like a small standalone hardbound in 1966. There's some book history article that somebody should write about like Christmas short stories that are published in like little standalone volumes. So I have this like te- I have a miniature of a Christmas Carol. Yeah. And yeah, I would bet a lot of money that there are other books like this. Yeah, no definitely. I I my edition of well actually no it's uh it's an edition of, I got uh, my my wife uh some years ago of of a Christmas memory is is this uh you know very nicely illustrated standalone edition um as was by Dylan Thomas last week. So yeah, it's definitely yeah. This is definitely a thing, uh, for sure. And yeah, and well, I mean, like, so the Dylan Thomas too. I mean, it's like okay, so I mean, it's 
it's not really children's literature. I mean, we talked about how like the, the, just the, the, the last, you know, there's a, there's a lot of sophisticated uh, shit happening to that, but like, it, you know, it's kind of just, oh, you know, boys running around having fun. This is not, I and mean, it's like a lot of funny moments, right? I think it does. Yeah. Like this is, I mean, okay. I like, I feel like teenager and older is like who you're going to have for this. So it's, so it's, yeah. inter- it's, you know what I mean? So we can't just say like, oh, well, a lot of children's literature is in those volumes. I mean, I, you know, that, that doesn't quite explain that phenomenon. Right. It's really interesting. And it's not just like, I, if it were a Christmas Carol only, I'd be like, okay, well, we know Victorians loved their goddamn paper. <laughs> so they got to put everything in a single volume, yeah. but yeah. this is across a lot of time. Yeah. You know, definitely. Yeah. So somebody write a really good essay on the book history of Christmas single volumes. Send it to us. We'll read it and then we'll help you publish it. Yeah, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's a to- it's a it's it's not a tall order. It's a totally normal thing. <laughs> so with this though, like there are lots of recordings, spoken recordings, including one by Capote, been adapted for TV, for stage, into a musical for some reason. But I guess like what? Yeah, I read it on the internet, so it's got to be true. <laughs> oh my God, can you? Okay, oh, all right. Wow. Oh, oh, okay. Mm. Look, uh-huh. there are two what? Billy Budd operas, so like nothing is off limits. <laughs> uh, yeah, I <laughs> I I can't believe I haven't seen one. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Gosh. this is actually now. Thank you. I'm gonna. I have something fun to do tonight. <laughs> Find the Billy. Yeah. Yeah, see whichever one really be well. around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um the Truman Capote one is from like 2010. Wow. Okay. Yeah. All right. So somebody let us know if it's any good. Don't we don't want to watch it. So and then there are also two follow ups to this, like about the same characters, the short stories, the Thanksgiving Visitor, and One Christmas that he wrote about Buddy and the woman in Capote's life was named Nanny Rumbly Falk, and he referred to her as Sook. So that's sort of the name that I associate with her, although she's not named in the story. And I've already said this, but I'm just going to mention quickly that it's like a tradition in 20th century Southern Gothic that there are really significant number of queer children. They often have close relationships with adults who are considered outside of normative categories. This is what I mean too by like the margin is broad. There are a lot of people who are othered. Member of the wedding is an example. I would say that the first chapter of Absalom Absalom has a degree of that. There are lots and lots of queer children more generally in the Southern Gothic novels of the first half of the 20th century. So that seems important maybe I mean, I think it it definitely raises your autobiography question too, right? And uh, like, I'll just say my own experiences reading this. I like so I went the first time I encountered it in high school. I did know like who Truman Capote was, and and, and but I don't recall in class talking about his his like biography really much at all. Uh, I also like with with ninth graders in that <laughs> era and that place. I don't know that they would have really got, gone down that sort of road. But but I did I do remember thinking that. It was, uh, you know, that okay. So I know that you know, I know Capote was gay. Like, I mean, does that, you know, uh, does that tell us anything about what he's doing with this story? But and 
but like I, I was definitely thinking more about that as I read this time. And again, like this the sort of the sort of outsider to like to stand outside of these kind of like authorized forms, like Buddy and and his cousin are definitely both not part of the household really even right i mean they're 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 they kind of do their own thing and everyone else sort of ignores them but that again like the question of autobiography that like if that does tell us anything about what that might be working through vis-a-vis queerness um, i do think is is a really interesting question and i think probably there's a, a lot here right i mean i think for me something that makes this hard to necessarily like completely no i mean i read it quite a bit as autobiography for a bunch of reasons one is that like capote says as much and Mm -hmm. he's the kind of person who has such broad cultural presence that Mm -hmm. many readers would have known that because he was like everywhere like he gave interviews he was on tv all the time he was a writer who was so strongly a cultural figure that you would probably know that Right. So, so, we, so as people are reading the, this, the first version is Mad Mademoiselle, they're definitely imagining Truman Capote, like narrating this and like about himself as, the, as they're doing that. Now, that's a good question because 56 is earlier in his career, but it's mm-hmm. after Other Voices, Other Rooms, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. clearly presents its character as queer. Okay. And that is also okay. autobiographical, but it's before yeah. his you know, constant television appearances and stuff. But like, yeah, it's sort of like gains in fame throughout the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I'll say when I just reread it this week, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, I mean, I, well, Capote just has such a even distinctive, just like speaking voice and everything. And, and you know, read a lot, like he, there's a lot of recordings, as, as mm-hmm. you said, Megan of him. Um, and, and he, and actually like, I, I listened to a version of this. Uh, I think I th- it might've been on this American life or something, which is, which is from oh, yeah. Capote reading it. And so as I'm reading it, I'm definitely hearing like true with Capote's voice. Oh, as I do. And it. I didn't even listen to a recording. Right. And, and why, I think partially too. I mean, not just like okay, you know what the guy sounded like, like how you know his his kind of speaking voice, his kind of performative aspect, but also uh, his writing style is so distinctive that I think if you know a bit of about Capote, it's very you know you just you definitely know who you're reading as you're as you're going through it. But but it's yeah, I mean, I it's I don't know, it's like I don't see much reason for interpretive reason to try to push the historical Truman Capote off to the side as you're reading this. Like, I don't, I don't really feel like that gets in the way of the reading. And I think it probably opens up a lot of stuff in the story. I mean, and I think maybe you don't have to know the depths of it autobiographically in the sense of like, we know that he, his parents shipped him off to live with these relatives, but like, you don't have to know that about Truman Capote to know that he's like the only child in this house and like who are these people he lives with like it also gives you a, enough detail that you can understand things like the profound loneliness of this child. Oh yeah. Yeah. So yes. the queer aspect is really interesting and important I think but it's also that like this kid's outsider status is like you could just go with the story and not know shit. And you'd mm-hmm. still know that. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Right. You'd still know and- that there's some alterity there, even if it's not the one that like even if it's not the if it's not the queer aspect. I agree with all of that. I think that it's partially that he's not directing that it be read autobiographically. 
It's like an option. Right. And I also think that the fact that he's seven is is really important because like he's still he's still a kid kid and you see his profound loneliness when he's pulled away from his friend right and because in this in this story he's like a pair with her yeah yeah totally and so all that's like super interesting in context i think Definitely. And no, you're right. Actually, within the story, b- before he gets sent off and we get that just like gutting, <laughs> like, fuck you, man. Fuck you, <laughs> Truman. Like, I don't, I don't need to, I don't need to be crying right, right now. Like, uh, you know, but <laughs> you like. You have to cry about in the world. I, I yeah, know, seriously. I know, sir, like, how, how dare you deploy your, your life story? <laughs> like, right. Your masterful <laughs> prose and your real life. <laughs> Yeah, making yeah. me sad. Yeah, no, no, I mean, like, before you get to that, uh, I mean, it does, you know, I mean, it's like, okay, I mean, obviously, you know, poverty is a thing here. And like, okay, there's a little bit of, there's an ominousness to the fact that like, no one else in the house really likes them. But they as a unit seem to be having a lot of fun and just operate on their own terms. You're, you're right, it is it is the, the kind of loneliness sort of comes in, to me, at least around the, the margins. But also that what you said to Katie reminding us that he's seven. Yeah. So, I mean, like, (laughs) obviously the perspective that we're getting here is not, uh, it is an adult recreating that, right? Like that is the narrative voice. It's not a narrator trying to step inside the perspective of a seven-year-old, you know, or, well, I mean, I guess it kind of is, but like, there's a lot that of the, like, that the kind of like adult reminiscence that is sort of, that is necessarily putting this in order that like, it would be hard to imagine a seven-year-old, like having the immediate experience of, of doing that, or like, like that, that would be able to, to, to kind of understand things in the way that Capote talks about in the story, or uh, I, I I don't know. I mean, is that? I mean, I think it's sort of like it really has to walk two lines in the sense that, like, the logic of it is totally. And there's an adult narrator for sure. We know because that narrator makes sense of it. But I think that the intensity and feeling sometimes does feel like a seven year old to me. Like, some yeah. whether it's explicit or not, like, there's something about that this delivers to me a feeling that is familiar to me from childhood. Whether it's yeah. there or not, there's something about this narrator that remembers what it feels like to be a kid. And th- well, that's the thing about him being mad about the Christmas presents. Like that is both <laughs> yes. the adult narrator and the kid together being, you know, yeah, like yeah, yeah. No, totally, totally. Well, and and also no, I mean, I this this actually does follow on Thomas from last week in ways that um I didn't necessarily expect in that like that was something that we noted with the child's Christmas in Wales too, right? That it's like it's this narrative voice that both has to be from the adult perspective and really seriously trying to recover the child's perspective at the same time like that right yeah, and know. it and it's always doing both things for me like there's that i don't know why this is the line that makes me cry is when so the the adults yell at sook and buddy and she's particularly upset so she like runs to and cries and she says they wouldn't treat me like that if i weren't funny and he mm-hmm. says you're not funny you're fun mm-hmm. You're the mm-hmm. most fun. And it's just like, oh my God. Oh my God. How yeah. that is like a child's version of something that I think he just takes like, no, you're the most fun. But the narrator completely understands what that what has happened there. Yes. But yes. we also get the child's sincere language to yeah. deliver that feeling. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yes. 
And that's yeah. something only that that can only come from a kid. Like another adult can't say, even if they they can't say you're not funny, you're fun, because all of the things that make her fun are things that they have some kind of disdain for. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so that, I mean, that does raise the the cousin as well. Um, and I, I know we wanted to talk a little bit about how we read her. So when I was in high school, and Katie, I think you said you had the same uh, experience or memory of this. Uh, I, I remember like our textbook basically say, you know, in, instructing us to read that character as deve- developmentally disabled. Are and not the teacher or both the textbook? That yeah, I, well, I think I think it was the te- I you know, I, I okay, yeah, I'm not sure if it was the teacher or or it was like kind of in the in the framing material of the text. Um, I mean, that's questions more than possible. Yeah, I but I, I I remember that that was you know that that was kind of like part of the reading guide. And when I was a, when I was a teenager, the first time I read it, I did accept that you know I, I didn't really you know think more critically about it. And I think the reason I did was because I was looking for a, a way to understand why this much older adult would have this relationship with this young child, and in, in a way that you know I certainly was not like familiar with you know like older adults and and, and children having that kind of very very close uh, sort of friendship. And I don't know that that's not part of the character, um, or if we. We should discount that reading, but I would say that rereading at this time, I didn't find that that like well, one, I I thought that there could there were other possible ways of reading her, and also that you know that that might be part of it, but just that you know that there yeah there are just kind of other ways we could think about like okay, so why is she sort of like marked as outside uh, the other sort of adult society? Like, what is it that does kind of characterize? their relationship. So yeah, I just I, I wasn't I wasn't sure about that reading of that character. I mean, I think we can probably all agree that like in the context of the work, she is and she isn't, or we don't this is not a question we can possibly answer, right? Because like the story yeah. presents her the story presents her in a way that is very much about point of view. But I think something we can agree that it does represent is that like her world is incredibly small so it's like this this could be any number of things right this could be about like a developmental disability or about like a rural life or about Mm -hmm. yeah any number of things but so there's this moment that i really like where she says so she's never been to a movie and then Mm -hmm. capote says in addition to never having seen a movie she has never eaten in a restaurant traveled more than five miles from home received or sent a telegram, read anything except funny papers in the Bible, worn cosmetics, cursed, wished someone harm, told a lie on purpose, let a hungry dog go hungry. And then there's some things that she has done. But the so that something like she's never traveled more than five miles from home, that just like sets out a little square for me of like what the range of her world. Yes, and so yeah. whether that has much to do with like Again, it's like we're not going to solve this problem, and that's not our point in having a discussion at all. It's just that, like, with her very circumscribed world, what that helps us see. But I'm Katie. Go ahead. I'm sorry. So I guess part of how I read the character, and yeah, Tristan, you're right. I did also get the same sort of like framing of her character, and it was actually I think that it was an exam question for me, like that it was supposed to be a (laughs) like this is a big reveal. Like, can you figure out the big reveal? Because I think as Megan pointed out earlier in the discussion, uh, Capote says like she, she was a child. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so 
when we look through that list of things, when we look through the list of things she hasn't done and the things she says, that presumably she's told the narrator, she's mm-hmm. told Capote, that like part of it is that she knows how to interact with a kid. And all of these things are either things that somebody just offhandedly says, but they're also lessons for him about like how to be a, you know, these are all like nice person things aside from the facts about how her life has been circumscribed, like not to be nasty to somebody on purpose and shit like that. That's the type of thing that often gets coded as naive mm. in the adult in the adult world, but actually in fact like is not really that. Right. Yeah, no, and and or and also just, you know, I mean having some like sympathy for this this boy who uh, you know, is in this house with people who are, you know, like distant relatives and don't really like him or want him there. And, and there are and no other kids there. There are no other kids there and also that they, you know, they don't they are kind they're assholes to her as well, so that kind of creates some camaraderie, but also like, you know, yeah, she's like a nice person. <laughs> there's the and there's this kid uh who, you know, is is has really shitty, you know, life and luck and She's 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 the person who actually knows how to talk to him. I think, yeah. I mean, certainly that makes sense. I, actually, I'll, I'll I'll take us to the passage that you mentioned, Katie, because I, I think that gives us a little bit more. Yeah, we are each other's best friend. She calls me Buddy in memory of a boy who was formerly her best friend. The other Buddy died in the 1880s when she was still a child. She is still a child. That's the, the part that you had mentioned. Um, yeah, and and so, but like w- what that means that she's still a child, I think there's a lot of ways we could take that in. Also, like uh, the the fact that her friend died in the 1880s, which that would have been, you know, she would have been either a child or like, a you know, most a teenager then if we're you know, taking this, this set in the 30s. Um, you know, so like kind of a form, you know, sort of formative trauma too like that that you know could explain part of their relationship i would also say too like megan what you were saying about how like kind of circumscribed her world is like there's also like class and uh you know and 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 time too like you know period of history right part of my family rural poor uh, like certainly in this era and yeah like before there were like highways and widespread access to cars um, you know, if you did that kind of like quasi subsistence farming, you didn't travel. Like, where where would you go? Like, I mean, what your world? You're gonna was. walk there. Yeah, you're gonna walk there. You're gonna take your horse yeah. cart, right? That's basically it. People left because they got a job on the railroad or they joined the army or something. But that was that was it. And and the movies too. Okay, so I think she's born in the 1870s. She's you know fully into adulthood by the time movies become a thing. And mm-hmm. this is not someone who has a ton of disposable income. Like, but so I mean, I don't want to dis. And, and I do think that like that she could be the dis- developmentally disabled. That that does raise another range, which is kind of like other to the sort of like the other adult world. World. And, and so again, I, I don't want to discount that. And I mean, you know, it, I, I think that well, Capote said a lot about the person that this was based on, right? Like one, he said that she was a genius, but I, I think mm-hmm. he, you know, but there is this this historical person there um, that we don't really know that much about, you know, within this story. But I, you know, but I just think that there are like that that is like one of many different ways in which her kind of outsideriness is flagged, or or other ways in which her world is circumscribed is sort of like flagged that I think are also certainly worth exploring or, or just keeping in mind as you're trying to figure out what her sort of narrative function is. Well, I think her being marginal is more illustrative for me, like the way that you've descri- described it as like outsideriness or whatever, because that's part of the tie to the kid is yes. that I I love the idea in the sort of literary context that like a kid 
that kids are consistently kind of marginal. I think that that's like a thought that is really cool. But I think it's also like what binds them together. And like whether it's because she's sort of because of a disability or because of like a very, very limited life or because of the other people she lives with or disconnection with other adults or however we want to think about that, that is at least as interesting a tie mm-hmm. as any other, right? Is like that that's the sort of like those are the marginal characters. Now I'm like just really interested in like that the child is sort of like the mi- minoritized oh, yeah. character. No, definitely. Well, and that I think that also takes us to the, the question about how family gets created in this that I, I know we also wanted to to get to. Uh, but uh, Megan, one thing I, I you said was that this character is well, not this specific character, but a character of that of of that sort of type, like an an older adult who you know relates differently to uh, particularly children um, is is kind of a common feature in Southern literature and the Southern Gothic specifically. The, the I guess kind of like the the eccentric uh, is, is one way is, is one way they just they're described, but just their age already sort of sets them them off from the, the main character. But also that there's just yeah, like they're they're they they just relate uh, like it, it is it is one kind of specific character in these kind of, these these uh, th- these kinds of literature that just relate differently to their world. Well, and often it's a sort of knowingness, but I think that what really marks this out differently is that it's like she does have a have a degree of wisdom, but it's not like mystic. Call or like, oh, the grandmother is imparting something. It's quite different than that, and much more interesting than like, like a version of family that I would find kind of eye rolly. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, I certainly don't think she has a a mystical quality. So what's interesting to me about her position in the family and with respect to the narrator is that she and he are both resented for being dependent on the family Mm -hmm. but they depend on each other in a way that's really about intimacy so it's like it's about dependency in two different we get two different versions of dependency and one is like very nourishing and enlivening Mm -hmm. for both of them and the other one is very isolating and they can't exist without each other well, and at least from Capote's perspective, or uh, yeah, the buddies, right? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, I mean, I think it is fair to read him as, as Capote. Um, but from his perspective, too, as the seven-year-old, they actually don't look dependent on the others. Like, I mean, I think that's how the others view them. Um, and, and in some ways, they, they may very well be. But, like, they've created their own economy and get you turn <laughs> getting money for the fruitcakes. They, like, they don't, other than Christmas morning when Buddy is, like, all tap dancing and waking everyone else up and making them mad. <laughs> They don't, uh, they don't, they kind of seem to like exist in their own sort of, uh, uh, you know, world that they've, they've, uh, they push others out of, um, which that I, so, right. So, I mean, that, that's, is it, there, there is this kind of like distant familial tie between them as there are to the other people in the house. Uh, so like there's family in that sense, but they also create their own version of what that would be. And that is this very kind of like intimate friendship, um, as, as a way of sort of dealing with, with how they are, uh, or more marginalized or, or or what have you which is yeah i mean that that's that is interesting and and i take it like what you were saying megan that she's not like marked as mystical uh, i totally agree with that although i would say that like her wisdom in this environment is unique because she's like the only person who fucking talks to him right yeah like, that's true how, how do you cook like a cake like i'm the only one in this house who could possibly impart that so i i mean i agree it is not like mysticized in any way but it is like this kind of special wisdom that only she would have access to of the adults who will 
actually speak to him. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. It's totally super great. I think that's – I mean, I think I like it because it's not some version of a grandmother like – Here's the lore of your family. You know, does that make yeah. sense? Like that version yeah. I find kind of, I don't know, very weird and and sort of like I'm trying to figure out what I'm it's, – it's weirdly like blood and soil or something like mm-hmm. especially in the south. This I, this is like – we'll get to it. But it's the first chapter of Absalom, Absalom. Like I think it's you know amazing that it is another older character and this young queer character who are bound together in this story but it's also like let me tell you about your fucked up family so you have access to this sort of like patrilineal blam and that's like not what's happening here at all right right yeah and it it almost can't happen because of her conflation of him with the other buddy oh totally yeah yeah because he can't there there can't be some like fundamental patrilineal truth in any regard here Yes, because it has to like anchor her in time in a different way than she is. Yeah. And we don't have, he doesn't have parents and that's important too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And also like the fact that this, I guess like I think about versions of this where like if they were fully alone, where would they live? How could they eat? I'd be concerned for them. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So we've got like. So this is a sort of like classic pro- – like it's just sad. Like it's just sad the situation that they mm-hmm. are in. And it's also like their – but their friendship is the beautiful part of it. Yeah. No, definitely. But it would be frightening if they didn't if they didn't live anywhere, you know? Like that would be a really yeah. different story. Yeah. Yes. Right. right. So, right. So their relationship to others provides like the bare bones of this kind of stability, but very little, very little else. Right. And so that allows them to have their, the, the sort of like richness of their relationship. Right. Yep. All the the reason why she's able to teach him to like, she teaches them to make fruitcake or like they're making fruitcake together. They're not making like a meal together. These are not, she's not, uh, it's not about utility. It's about finding things that are also like that are also nourishing differently right in in the way that they like are absolutely not right so it's like crappy candies and well i guess they don't use candy but like sugar and whiskey and things that are like explicitly like non-nourishing it's the experience that is yeah yeah but it's but it's like the only yeah exactly and that is like the only people need fucking pleasure to live like it's just yeah yeah, no, definitely. And well, and then they, you know, they use that to then kind of forge all these other ties with this imagined world, right? Like, I think it's, uh, you know, you're supposed to like be a, like, I don't know, it's like one of those details, it's a little kind of heartbreaking, but also really great and and funny when that they're sending a cake to the White House. Be, because I mean, the reason is like, you get the sense that she really thinks that like, Mr. Roosevelt might eat this. And of course, we know not. But I mean, you know what? I mean, that's also not the point, right? I mean, it's right. like, it's this kind of imagined relationship to the world out of this thing that they're creating that is like much better than what the actual world is you know yeah, it's like letters to santa it's only yeah. it's not sad it's just like it, yeah it, it involves like an active imagination that we sort of like admire like think it's sweet yeah, yeah. no absolutely yeah. yeah katie what kind of game are we playing we're playing a game where there are only losers and no winners today because it's would you rather <laughs> with the kind of disgusting gelatin-based delicacies that were contemporaneous with the time that Capote wrote this story. So this is really 
Uh, this is going to be a tough one, but there, there's a prize at the end for whoever, whichever one of you takes this the hardest, whoever I think needs sustenance <laughs> after. And it's, uh, and I'll ship you a party cheese lime salad. That's not one of the <laughs> options today, but I will send you uh, a party, party cheese lime salad. It is disgusting. It has molded lime flavored jello, of course. We have pineapple juice. And then we get some other things uh, that are a little more confusing, like we get vegetables and uh, cottage cheese and, of course, vinegar. Uh, mm. And that's how you have a party. It's a party. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so delicious. Yum. So, my question for you is do you want to go into the to your would you rathers do you just want to know the name of the thing and pick from there or do you want to know exactly what you're getting into i just want to know the name and then i want to and then i want to know how huge a mistake i've made yeah I okay yeah okay so your first set of options is a party sandwich loaf versus holiday appropriate christmas candle salad i mean the first one sounds far more innocuous so i'm not sure if that's the right decision yeah and is the second one the sandra lee christmas <laughs> candle salad is that what that is i i'm not familiar with that particular <laughs> candle salad sandra lee this the, the, i know i know her yeah oh yeah andrew andrew cuomo's former partner right mm-hmm. yeah the <laughs> <laughs> the the the, uh, the 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 celebrity chef cook who made her name on like <laughs> all that fifties food that was so gross is what I'm going to help you make right but um. <laughs> well it was like semi homemade so it means buying things yes. like cake mix or uh-huh. you know all those like fifties convenience foods and yeah. then. And then trying adding, to improve adding, them, like by adding ready whip and some gummy bears to it, yeah, um, yeah. Like it I, only annoys me when it's things that are incredibly easy to make. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Like, go ahead and buy a cake mix. I don't care. But if it's like frosting, you know, that's like two ingredients, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I. You know, I, I I'm going to go with the Christmas candle salad because what? You know, what the fuck ever. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to go with the sandwich, knowing that I will have made a huge mistake. Yeah. Okay. I well, I mean, no spoilers, but you've both made a huge mistake. Yeah. Um <laughs> Okay. So and I will we'll, I'll reveal I'll at reveal the, at the end what okay. you've gotten yourselves okay. into. Um second two set of options. Monterey souffle salad. We're doing the salad portion of the meal. Monterey souffle Monterey salad or mm. perfection salad. Perfect. Oh salad. wow. Would okay. you like a Monterey souffle or would you like perfection? Per- Perfection salad sounds like it probably has like 50 different kinds of sugar in it, I'm thinking. Mm. Uh, Related to an ambrosia salad. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I I mean, you know, I'm going to get that 50s mind. It's like Monterey, like in Mexico or California. So it's exotic. Uh, I want a little exoticness for my – I kind of can't speak. Uh, Yeah, uh, I want that for my my holiday celebrations in 1952. So I'm going to go for the same one for a different reason, which is that I want to know what we're souffling in this souffle. <laughs> Good mm. point. Yeah. Yeah. You're, what gets, gets souffled? Yeah. Oh, you're going to love the answer. Yeah. Um, it's okay, ham. So that's- <laughs> Can it's you souffle a ham? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're about to find out all the things you can, you can souffle. All right. And we have to have something healthy. We're doing healthy. So- <laughs> Would you like for your 
your last would you rather would you rather you're lucky i didn't do fuck mary kill by the way on these a jellied tomato refresher refreshing or vegetable daisies oh i'm actually going with the with the tomato thing because i really do i know what tomato aspic is and the second one that there are surprises awaiting me that i do not want to encounter yeah i'm sorry what was the second one called vegetable daisies vegetable daisies yeah they involve eggs i guarantee it yeah <laughs> uh, yeah you're probably right uh like an egg with like a halo of like celery sticks around it or something like oh, that God. Uh, what is it with these people in celery that's only for putting it in a soup you dum-dums i i'm i think i'm gonna go with the ve- the vegetable uh the the the, the, the vegetable daisy just because again what the fuck um i will say that the, this all of this is surprising to me because i'm finding the victorian christmas games that we played last year much less unsettling than this mid-20th century americana bullshit you know i know like that like this the, is- the bullet pudding where you had to like a like lead ball with your rotten Victorian teeth out of like a bowl of flour, oh, right. <laughs> flour. accidentally die in the process. It's like yeah. the punishment version of the the king's cake. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes, right. I don't know what anyone is bitching about vaping for. If um if Victorians were just inhaling flour directly into their lungs. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that in general that's the right health comparison to make, though, which is like, are we doing anything as bad as the Victorians are? <laughs> I mean, no, I, I lick every lead pipe I see. I mean, <laughs> many of them lived into their 60s. I don't know what you're wearing. <laughs> you know, you're wearing. I'm almost there already. I'd like to keep living. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, yeah, so vegetable daisy for me. Um, yeah. Just an easy day. Perfection and daisies. Yeah. Mm, yes, a perfection and daisies for the gen. The lady will be having the jello, the the tomato jello. Yeah. Okay, so you're ready to find out what you have gotten yourself into. Oh, Absolutely. Yes. Okay, well, the party sandwich loaf, I'm sorry to say, involves oh fucking hell. It, it's stories. It's got shrimp salad, deviled ham spread, <laughs> and it's covered in cream cheese, oh. half and half. And food coloring as the frosting. <laughs> so actually, the deviled ham and the shrimp, uh, I, I saw, I'm not that, I'm not, those both sound fine on their own, but then combined and then layered uh-huh. with everything else. It's just, that is the worst thing ever. I When you told us we were doing this game, I was thinking of the, the pimento ham. I, I, I think I told you guys about that just ham layer lathered with mayonnaise with pimento shoved into it. <laughs> and, I'm know? always wondering when the mayonnaise is going to happen. And in this case, it's in the shrimp salad. It's yeah. They fucking, they love that. They absolutely love that. And but, I'm a Mayo fan, but it's, it happens in weird locations. Yeah, totally. Well, we'll get ready for some more mayo, Tristan, because <laughs> you selected the Christmas candle salad. Uh-huh. Now, this one, this is like actually pretty much fine. It's it's cranberry jello, and the candles are made from bananas. Okay. However, are they just like however, shoved in there? Like, how do they stand up if they're ba- whole bananas? Those weigh like four ounces each. You stick a little uh, uh, toothpick in there, and yet you, you know, you get the job done. I think. I I assume. <laughs> you, didn't, um, you didn't actually do. You didn't actually like do all of these dishes in an experiment for the podcast. I, 
Well, I did not, and here's why. Because there's melted wax involved in the candle salad, much like in the Ricky Martin Live and La Vida Loca video. Um, <laughs> if anyone knows that. But that's mayonnaise in this case. Oh, what? Uh, yeah, there's the mayo. We, we got that's to the mayonnaise. mayo. Yeah, There okay. she is. Yeah. There she is. So uh, the fairly benign cranberry sauce plus bananas is now fucked up with mayo. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Well, and we're about to fuck up even more things. Yeah, let's 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 hear the rest of these. Monterey souffle salad. Well, it's an invention of a tuna company. So <laughs> hold on oh, your hat. Good. Um, you, you'll, you'll simply need some Jello, uh, lemon flavored, of course. Uh-huh. Um, and then you'll need tuna, and then uh-huh. you'll need oh the mayo and a bunch <laughs> of veggies, okay. and you ju- you just kind of. You, you, you form it, yeah, you mold it, you form it, you eat it. There's tuna in it, around it, on it. Um, it's not good. We don't like it. So oh what's souffled? Uh, <laughs> uh, it's, just, uh, it's just a French salad word, Megan, yeah. for the task. It's just a word in the middle of the, the foodstuffs? That makes yeah. no sense. Oh, God. Yeah. Nor does the ch- combining tuna and gelatin, but here we are. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out to my father who has been gathering wild mushrooms in bulk and making tiny mushroom soufflés for the other members of my family who are there. I'm jealous (laughs) of you. Yeah, no that that sounds yeah that sounds a lot better than this. I will just say again, uh, I, I I hear stuff like this, and I know why the boomers are the way they are. Like I, <laughs> I true, I, they're, I they're malnourished. <laughs> they, they, yes. Yeah, exactly. Like, can you <laughs> can you imagine growing up on this stuff? Yeah, warps you in a very specific way. <laughs> um, Jello is only dip- for when you feel very 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 sick. That's like that's its intended purpose. Yeah. Hospitals. That- yeah. Yeah, it's also for perfection salad. I'll have you know. Let's hear it. Here it is. That one you got. You got your Jello, uh-huh. and maybe you got some. Oh yeah, you have some pimento. Yes, uh-huh. uh, you have some cabbage. Of course, you yeah. have some peppers. Red or green will do. Mm-hmm. Carrots and celery, and then you gel gelatinize that, <laughs> and and then um, and then you you. Put a bowl of mayo into you serve it with a bowl of mayo. That's like the dip. Uh, mm. So, so that's that's just what you do. That's what. You, oh, and there's apple. You put apple juice in there too, and lemon juice and vinegar. And why the fuck not? Uh, you know, my grandmother used to make something almost exactly like this, and she grew up on a reservation, and so I sort of suspect that this was like the Jello was like a fancy like. Convenience foods probably, I'm imagining, actually felt really fancy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they're also in fun shapes. Like everyone yeah. apparently had a fish-shaped mold. Yes. Yes. Can they definitely, she definitely had molds. Yeah. Well, and it does, well, also, also, doesn't gelatin provide some sort of uh, kind of vital nutrients that you don't, uh, or, or that, you would, that you would get from other kind of meat-based things, but yeah. in powdered yeah. form. Like. Yeah. It's, the gelatin, I think, has a lot of protein, right? I, yeah, and it, isn't it made of bones? It is. Yeah, yeah it, it's made from bones. Yeah, I don't know if it still is because you can use something like agar for you can mm-hmm. they make like vegan gelatin, but I mm-hmm. don't know. Mm-hmm. It's still jelly. So Megan, you know what you picked on the last one, and that's just a straight Jello shot of uh, Bloody Mary. 
Yeah. Okay. Does All it right. actually have vodka in it? No. Um, uh, but I added it for you because I thought it was too rude to make you yeah. eat a even an imagination. Uh, <laughs> I mean, blood. I love. I do love Bloody Marys, but if they didn't have the vodka, in them, it's kind of like what the fuck's the point? <laughs> I'm not taking tomato juice and Tabasco sauce. You know. Oh, I like them without, but <laughs> without the alcohol. But I'm not like Mary. I'm not. Right. You know, it's not my first choice. Uh, and what did, what did we, uh, what, what, what did, uh, I, sorry, I just, I love the scene in Mad Men, uh, early season where they have like a breakfast and work meeting and there's a giant picture of Bloody Mary's with an entire celery, uh, like the head of celery sitting in it. That's pretty great. (laughs) (laughs) How we really all should live just, you know. (laughs) completely emotionally stunted and drinking all the time absolutely drinking all the time uh smoking constantly and uh yeah just uh fully within the uh the 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 white male bougie patriarchy right (laughs) okay that even kills the white male that may be the one thing they got right like the rest of it's all bad (laughs) right yeah yeah sure yeah yeah but the white patriarchy part is like fucking great Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. It's like, yeah, let's maybe the, maybe the smoking wasn't that bad, really. You know? Yeah, if we if we could do a swap, um, but I'd like to picture a Bloody Mary at um at work breakfast. Thank you very much. That, yeah, I'd like to Okay, so Tristan, you, the vegetable daisies. I mean, we're really ending on a well, we're ending on a on a fart because this is sort of a boring <laughs> one, but also will make you fart. There's absolutely no getting around it. <laughs> Because it involves like every root vegetable ever invented, like turnips, rutabaga. You can put beet, you can put beet in it, and carrot, and you and you stick cream cheese all down the middle. Oh yeah, and you you smush it into the shape of a flower, and you shove it in your gullet and have diarrhea for three. <laughs> yeah, cool. That's but, the yeah. least disgusting one by far. <laughs> yes, I eat cream cheese and root vegetables now. Uh, yeah, not in combination, but yeah, but I, I mean, I will say just you know, yeah, this was disgusting. The combinations are really, uh, with the exception of the Monterey uh, souffle thing, which that just everything was bad. It really is the combinations that make all of this horrible, uh, more so than the individual. It really is. Yeah. Yes. Well, uh, I think we're really all losers today. I know. So I'll just split the party cheese, lime salad in half, and um, you'll both get a shipment. Oh, delicious. I can't Thanks. wait. It's Thanks. just going to be like, can you, you can't send me any uh, New Jersey smoked salami. It smells like a tire fire. She yeah. Can, well, I, I ate that, though. You can s- send us pork roll. Pork roll's great. I haven't had pork rolls <laughs> in over a year since I was in Philly last. I don't know what that is. You, 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 you need to know what it is. It's amazing. Could I make it in my home? does your home have like five tons of salt and the processing facility <laughs> like, it does it has neither of those things <laughs> is your home a slaughterhouse because if so yes yes and call it shea abattoir no <laughs> <laughs> okay well thank you all this has been better red than dead you can find tristan on twitter at tj schweiger you can find katie on twitter at katie crywo you can find me on twitter at teslersaurus you can find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Better Ed Pod at email us at betteredpodcast at gmail.com, but only if it's to tell us what you would do creatively with mayonnaise, not in a sex way, in a food way. <laughs> Actually, you know what? Don't email us at all. Like, yeah, so you can just set that out this episode. Yeah, we don't, yeah, we don't, we don't need fine. emails. <laughs> Thank um, you for your message. We are out of the office. <laughs> <laughs> this is a mayonnaise specific out of office message. 
Um, our intro music is Left Bronstein by the Redskins and used with their permission. Our logo was created by Jane Bonsack of JB Design and Content. Please rate and review and subscribe and we'll send some stickers and buttons. Next week, I'm so excited. We have Sydney Owenson's The Wild Irish Girl and <laughs> William Faulkner's Absalom Absalom on deck after that. And then we are closing season three in January with one of our very short recap goofball episodes. So thanks, comrades. But she went to heaven just one year ago. The angels came for her at the first fall of snow. He still had the darling that she used to love. He helped and caressed him. And gazed up above He whispered, my darling You're waiting, I know I'll bring you your darling At the first fall of snow And there as I live